0: morning. We're in Daniel chapter 6 today, and we're going to be looking at uh, the beauty of God when we go out. We pursue God up in and out, and when we go out and pursue God, we see a whole other angle of God that we never see. We never see Him... Oh oh yeah, kids, bye. Sorry. Have fun. And uh, obviously the theme um, of our rally days is is, is that out, the going forth, the get to work. And there's a reason for that. It's not just because God needs laborers to get stuff done. I mean, obviously, God can do whatever he wants. But he, we have an ability to experience and know God in a very unique and special way when we get in mission with him. And obviously, there is a world in deep pain and in deep need, and it needs the transforming work of God. And it's up to us now to be the channels of God in those spaces And there's all sorts of work to be done. And God waits. He's extremely patient. He has this bizarre patience that won't just hurry up and get stuff done. He waits for us to engage in it because part of what he wants to accomplish is not just getting the work done. He wants the experience of doing that work with us. You know, this is a family project for him. And so we have to come and be a part of it. And one of the things that happens here is like that video uh, showed, you know, we have a broken world where people are sad and left and, you know, but there's rebuilding to be done. And there's a picture of people who were deep, deep in despair because they had been taken from their homes and everything was broken. And in the middle of that was their hope and was there a way for God to move forward? And that's the story of Daniel. Okay, when they were in exile. The Israelites were in exile. We're in Daniel chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. Feel free to grab one, and you can keep it and take it home uh, with you if you don't have one. Uh, Daniel chapter 6, this book is split in half. The first six chapters are actually the stories of Daniel and his buddies when they're in exile, and they're brought into the leadership system and the organization of the government there in Babylon when they're taken out of Judea. The next chapters after that, Uh, they they get really confusing, and they're hard, and we're not touching them this morning. They're all prophecies, and they're all weird, and they're hard to figure out. The first six chapters are all the stories about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and this is the last of them. So this is the the tail end of all the stories, okay? This is a story that many of you have heard many a times. It's Daniel in the lion's den, okay? And this is the last. Daniel is like in his 80s at this point okay, when this story takes place. You might not have known that before. He's no spring chicken, you know. And uh, I was telling people in in the first service, and I'll say there might be a few of you hanging around in this service as well. If you're in your 80s, I hate to break the news to you, you're not a spring chicken yet. But the good news is is that, uh, you know, Daniel... It rises to the top in this situation. At the age of 80, he's incredibly effective at what it is that God's called him to do. So uh, basically what's happened, they were taken from Judea and exiled into Babylon. Babylon has now been taken over by uh, the Medes and the Persians. Uh, They took over uh, Babylon, so change of power. Daniel has served under a bunch of kings at this point, and the latest one is King Darius. Remember Belshazzar, there was writing on the wall in the middle of some party, and Daniel said, you guys are about to go down. That's what the the writing means it was that's a paraphrase tim's version you guys are going down that night they went down darius takes over so this is the story now there's this other king who took over darius and here we go in chapter six okay it pleased darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them one of them one of whom was daniel the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps that by by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Okay, so here's the situation. Uh, he takes over the King Darius he takes over, and now he needs help governing the place and so he sets up these one hundred and twenty satraps now what 's their job this isn 't this isn't like democracy in in the u s you know these uh, they 're not there running government programs to help make sure that our lives are okay and we 're having whatever you know it 's not like that they 're there for one purpose, basically, is to collect the money for the king. You know, that's basically their job, make sure everybody does what they're supposed to, primarily getting the money to the king. Now, the king also knows that uh, you can't count on anyone necessarily to keep the money the way it's supposed to be. There's got to be accountability. And so he puts these three administrators over them. So he's got 120 people collecting his money and enforcing things. And he's got three guys who are making sure it gets done right. Daniel's one of them. Okay. And, uh, Now, it says that Daniel so distinguished himself that he's about to be made ruler over the entire kingdom. Can you picture, does this remind you of anybody else? Joseph, it's just like Joseph when he goes and he's taken into Egypt, and then all of a sudden he rises up and he's about to be put in charge of the whole thing. Daniel and Joseph have so much in common, it's ridiculous. They both interpret dreams. They're both in foreign lands. They both have, you know, it's amazing the, the parallel between these guys. When God goes out, when you go forth with God and he spreads this out, and then God shows he's not just the God in Israel, he's the God out there, you know, and these guys are pictures of that. And so uh, now Daniel rises to the top. Now, what is it about Daniel that sets him apart? I mean, we know that he's a gifted and a wise individual. We know that because that's how he got into the program in the first place, him and his buddies. However, everyone in those positions. That's how you get in. That's just how you get in. That's not how you set yourself apart. It's like if you go, if you're an incredible athlete and all of a sudden you go to the majors, well, that's great. Everyone in the majors is really good. You know, how do you set yourself apart? It's something different. And so what is it that sets him apart? There's two things in particular. First of all, this guy's got incredible integrity and moral fiber. I mean, he sticks to his guns in his faith like no one else think about this how easy would it be with the qualities that he has he's taken from his home taken from all the accountability taken from everything else and now he's given a hot shot position in the government in some foreign land and he's tempted with all the stuff that this foreign land has to offer. It's like some young musician or young athlete who makes it big, gets signed, goes to Hollywood, goes to Manhattan, goes wherever, and there's the lifestyle of the rich and famous. This is the center of the known universe, Babylon, you know, and he's in the middle of all of it here, and it would have been so easy to compromise, and he wouldn't have even had to forsake Yahweh. He wouldn't have had to change his religion. He just would have had to play ball a little bit and learn to skim some of the the fun that they were having that temptation, but he never fell. He never fell. We struggle, by the way, on this level. We acknowledge God and, and, and we continue to say that he's the one we worship, but our lives, do they worship God like that or do they get syncretistic where there's other gods in our lives that we continue to find our pleasure in and we, and we continue to, but he doesn't. He doesn't compromise. This isn't just about whether or not he says, Yahweh's my God. It's about whether his lifestyle follows the commands of Scripture. And he's ruthlessly committed to being submissive and obedient to God. And so because of that, he has this high moral fiber. Now, oh, sorry, not the altar. Goodness gracious. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Anyway, the uh, you know, when he... He maintains his integrity, and what happens is, is while everyone else is partying and doing whatever they're doing and beginning to fall into temptation in their lifestyles, throughout time, their effectiveness decreases. It's like a person who goes to Hollywood or goes to the majors, and all of a sudden, they, they, like all that lifestyle's there, and you watch, they could have been this good but they got about this good because they got caught up in all that stuff and it kept them from being effective. They couldn't stay disciplined. He stays disciplined, and over time, he just it, he ripens. And it's like, it, it's like the, 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 his age does well for him, you know, it, because what ends up happening is as he gets older, instead of, like, losing his effectiveness, no, it's like, a, it's like a good wine or a good cheese that, like, if it's aged just right, it gets better with time, you know, and that's what happens with him. In this moment, like over time, it just gets richer and richer and richer. And now it's this guy with massive wisdom who's maintained his integrity, who has strong resolve and has learned how to do that over the test of time. That's a huge reason why he's set apart, but it's not the biggest reason. Here's the biggest reason why he's set apart is because when they look at Daniel, they don't just see Daniel, they experience God. You know how I know that? Because there's no way that he could figure out what the writing on the wall meant without God. Because he doesn't know, he doesn't know what, how to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream without God. His buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't have fireproof suits that they wore into the fiery furnace. The only way they made it out of there was because of God. These were men of prayer who learned that no matter how good looking they were, and we were told they were, no matter how skilled they were, and we're told that they were, no matter how wise they are, and we're told that they were, no matter how successful, no matter what they had, they recognized something. That it wasn't The power of men that was necessary in order for their job to be done well and for their lives to shine. It was the power of God that was necessary in order for them to accomplish what it is that God needed accomplished. And so what they had learned was to pray and to lean into God. And when it happened, all of a sudden you'd start seeing productivity in these men that was bizarre. It was bizarre. They were set apart and it was like, why? Because God is a supernatural God and sometimes his supernatural power manifests itself in very natural ways. Like, all of a sudden, this guy just kicks tail at his job, you know? Because God's with him and he's praying and he's depending on God and God's helping him do it. And so he's distinguished in that way. Okay, and so that's what sets him apart. Now, he's going to be set over the entire kingdom. Now, this is... This is, uh, doesn't go down easy with his co-workers, okay? It says, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to de- do so. So they're trying to discredit him. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, that's that high moral fiber, and neither corrupt nor negligent. That means he's got all, he's got, he's, it's tight at this point. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Okay, so we've got to pick this apart. First of all, why, do they want, why are they so bent? Like, why are they so frustrated? Is this just kind of the average competition of like when, you know, the corporate ladder, there's a fight and someone's getting promoted and it's, not them? No, it's, it's obviously deeper than that. Because the whole group going after this guy, Daniel would be a good boss. You know, he'd obviously be a good boss. He's an honest guy. He's treated them fairly. So why are they so frustrated with him? There's two big reasons. First of all, he's a Jew and they're racist. Okay? It's that simple. You'll find it later on in the later on in the passage. He's a Jew, they're racist. They start talking about him as an exile of of Judah. They have, uh, he's a second-class citizen in their minds because he's a Jew and they have all this struggle around this thing of racism. And racism, we all know that it's still alive and well. That Back then, it was like just blatantly like acceptable, you know, which which is horrible. We've gotten to a place in America after civil rights movements where the the overt hatred in, in, in all of that is recognized as pure stupidity and evil. And yet we still have the underlying parts of racism that that we still struggle with and which you see in this environment Which is about fear of the unknown about like there's the good old boys, you know And and if you just keep to your own and do things a certain way There's a you feel a sense of safety in that or security and now someone comes around who I don't know where they're from I don't know what their background is. I don't know whether I can depend on them. They feel like an outsider to me. And I don't know. I don't like the fact that they're getting promoted because it kind of, now I lose a sense of control, you know? And that type of racism is, is still a struggle, right? I mean, many of you are of different uh, uh you have different colors of skin than just the Caucasian American color. So you know all about this struggle. You've experienced it all the time. And uh, you know, I hope and pray that at Parker Ford church, we experience what Paul talks about where he says in Christ, there is now therefore neither Jew nor Greek slave, nor free male, nor female, just Christ in all. And I hope we experience more of that. We're not there yet. We got a long way to go, you know, but we continue to hope and pray that God will bring a unity and that Parker Ford church will be a picture of that kind of love. And, and for those of you who have experienced uh, struggles because of the color of your skin, I'm really sorry about that, and we hope that that changes. And it's not just color of skin. I mean, there's all sorts of things that people uh, you know, get judged for, but it's a big one. You know, Like the, like the old uh, Ethiopian em- emperor said, uh, we, won't fight the, the, we won't stop the war on racism until the color of a man's skin is no more relevant than the color of his eyes you know? And uh, if that were true, it could be a beautiful thing. And we believe that the only way that can actually happen is through Jesus. That's the only way that can actually happen, because fear is what feeds those problems, and the only way that fears are truly relieved is in the comfort of Jesus, in knowing that he's got us. Beyond that, we all have fear, you know? So anyway, that's what, side note, by the way, I think an important one, you know, we have a the beauty in this church, part of the beauty of this church is that there's a lot of different colors of skin starting to emerge, especially for East Coventry in Chester County, you know, and it's a beautiful thing, you know, and, and we want to treasure the fact that God has blessed us with a lot of different backgrounds here. And we want to celebrate that. And, but we recognize that's not an, an easy thing. So um, that, but that's what happened to Daniel. And you see this man of great integrity, great skill, and, and he's obviously the guy for the job. And yet there's a prejudice. Now that's the only, not the only, thing that they don't like about him. It's not the only reason. The bigger reason, actually, why they really don't like him is because of that high moral fiber that he carries. You see, what happens is, is when we begin to live righteous lives and when we take God seriously, take his word seriously, it doesn't always go down kindly, does it? I mean, Jesus actually says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness. And he he says, be glad and rejoice when people mistreat you and, and speak all sorts of false things about you because your reward is in heaven. You know, And and Jesus tells us this is going to be the case. Why? Because now we're a moral compass in other people's lives. And if we're living lives of righteousness around other people who are living in ways they shouldn't, they get annoyed because now all of a sudden they have to feel this guilt thing. Now, listen, there's a huge difference between people who live their lives the way they're supposed to And by that, they're salt and light to the world. There's a big difference between that and someone who decides that they're going to go around and be the police and tell everyone what they're doing wrong with their life. There's all sorts of Christians who are persecuted for righteousness, but it's not actually righteousness they're persecuted for. They're persecuted for judgmentalism, which is something worthy of being persecuted for in some ways. You know what I mean? Like there's there's a sense of if, if we come around, you don't see Daniel come into the Babylonians and say you shouldn't be living this way. The Ten Commandments say you shouldn't be living this way. He's not trying to get them to sign on to something that they hadn't signed on for. You know what I mean? And in the same way, if I go to my workplace and I say, well, God doesn't like it when you do this or that. Well, they don't even know God yet. And so now the first impression I'm giving them of God is just simply telling them the rules of God and that he's this authoritarian figure when that's not actually what they initially need to know. What they initially need to know is you're going to feel uncomfortable hanging around me. Okay. And when you do, Know that I love you and know that God does too. And he's got a whole nother way out of this mess, you know? And, I, and that's what they need to know is when they get sick and tired of their life, that there's another way, you know, and that there's hope. That's what they need to know the conviction, it's already there. And by us being who we're going to be, it's going to cause that level of conviction. People don't need us to be police in their lives. They need us to be police in our own lives. And if we're police in our own lives, it has an ability to change things. Now, listen, what ends up happening is, is it's not only the fact that Daniel's going to be, you know, kind of the wet blanket on their fun party or something because of his high moral character that's going to frustrate them. There's another really big reason why this integrity of Daniel is going to irk them if he becomes their boss. You know what that is? Anybody have any guesses? The money, it's all about the money. I mean, they know right now they're skimming off the top. The whole reason that these administrators are there is because the king knows he's bleeding money and he doesn't want to suffer loss. So he puts these guys in there as accountability figures. And so what ends up happening is, is they got a little deal about how they're going to get their money and they're going to play it shady. But this guy, they know that he's got integrity and he's not going to let it happen. Now, all of a sudden, these bonuses that they're getting on the side are going to go missing. They got to find a way to stop this thing. You see how that works? understand how it works. I mean, it's not like we've ever seen any of that kind of thing in our world or anything. But, you know, it's obvious why this would be frustrating. They don't want him breaking up the thing they got going. So they got to come up with a plan and they recognize we got to take this guy out. They try to find a way to discredit him, but they realize this guy's more submissive and he has a higher allegiance to the king than we do. You know, like he submits to our king better than we do. That's kind of what they find out. And they're like, we can't actually nail this guy on, on his job. He's thorough. He's faithful. He submits to the king. He does it. How about if my life got combed like that? Oh, that's a scary thought, isn't it? If they were trying to find something to pin on us, could they find anything? That's a scary thought right there. And with Daniel, he actually like made it past that whole thing. It's, it's a cr- incredible integrity. Okay, now, so what they say is there's only one way to get him. And oh, that this would be true of us that if someone was looking to pin us, this is what they would say. That they would say, there's only one way we're getting them. The The only way we're going to get her is if we take her allegiance to God and the allegiance to her country, or the allegiance to God and the allegiance to her family, or the allegiance to God and the allegiance to her church or her workplace, and we put them against each other, where there has to be, and uh, she has to choose between either God or workplace. He has to choose between either God or whatever. And once those things get in competition, these guys know it's the only way we'll get him because even though he, he loves the king more than any of us do, he loves his God even more. How about that for a testimony? They, did he tell them that? He didn't tell them that, they just watched. How about that for a testimony? You know, it's, it's incredible. Okay, so they're like, all right, we got to come up with a plan. So verse 6, so the administrators and the satraps went as a group. To, and you got to listen to how they manipulate. I mean, now they're afraid and they're trying to take control. So everything here just drips with the way people take control. Okay, so the first thing, they went as a group, of course. Safety in numbers, get big, bully, we got the union with us, here we go, you know, whatever. And so so the uh, the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king. And then, of course, you got to flatter the leader, you got to butter him up. So they say, oh, King Darius, live forever. And, and uh, you know they try to get on his side, butter up to him. Then the, they say the royal administrators, prefects, saptrips, advisors, governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next thirty days, except you, O king, shall be thrown into the lions' den. So let me tell you how this works. First of all, they found a game plan that was appealing to the king. Now it's not appealing to the king just because Darius is an ego tripping guy who wants everyone praying to him. For them, religion is like. This isn't about, like, for Daniel, his faith is so personal, you know? He believes, he's a monotheist, he believes in one God, and he believes he can communicate with that God. For these guys, religion's just a whole other thing out there. Like, it's another one of these things, they're polytheists, they believe in many gods It's to be used and tossed around. And, 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 but what they do here is they're basically, let me paraphrase this for you or explain a little bit. It's like, Darius, man, the kingdom is getting huge and it's spreading all over the place. We need some unity here. So, you know, why don't we just tell everyone to stop praying to all the other gods for a minute and just pray to you and get us all unified as a kingdom. And it'll be really good for the for the kingdom, you know? And so they pitch this plan to him. That sounds good. Unity for the kingdom. And so He's not thinking of it, most likely, as a religious thing at all. He's thinking of this as a political move, not as a religious move. So Daniel, of course, this is going to be very personal for him because of his life is about God. But that's not even what Darius is. Like, they're not even on that plane. You know what I mean? They don't have that thing. And it's certainly not saying that Darius is the only God. They're not monotheists. They don't think on that way. This is all political move in Darius's mind. So he signs off on it because he doesn't even notice. Now, listen. So they come as a group and they flatter the king. You know they spread fear around everyone. It doesn't say this, but you know they were like, Did you hear what's going to happen? Daniel's going to be there. We're going to lose all our jobs. Man, you're never going to be able to buy Christmas presents for your kids anymore. You know, like, you know, all this stuff. And they get it all riled up and they go as a group and they come with this plan and they go and pitch this idea to the king. And then what happens? And what happens? So they, they have to tell a lie. What's the lie? Where do they lie in this thing? All agree not true who is not there Daniel's not there and he's the chief administrator and it says it says right there I want to look on this one with you here where is it Uh, here we go royal administrators there was three administrators and they said we all agree the one who was the chief administrator who was going to be over the whole thing He's part of that deal. They straight up lied. This is what happens. If you want to get human control and and you don't like the way things are going, at some point you have to violate your integrity, okay? And they violate their integrity and they pad the stats and they deceive and they only show certain details. And the great goal at the end is to try to get the system and the policy just the way that it works for me. This is how human control works all the time. You work in human systems, you flatter people, you gossip, you, you pad the stats, make it look a certain way, and then you get people to agree to a system that's going to work for me. That's, that's like human political control manipulation 101. Okay? So if you, you need to figure out how to control and manipulate, look at these guys. They're great at it. Okay? That's what we teach, taught you in church this week. Um, so, so now... Um, Yeah, uh, where are we? Um, How far down did we get here? Um, I'm going to go to verse 8. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So Darius put the decree in writing. So it happens, it's done, Darius buys it. Now here's the deal. Daniel now is in the position of fear, right? I mean, they've all been afraid because they're losing control, but now Daniel's the one who the threat's coming against him. So, the tables are turned now, li- listen to this. Daniel is way smarter than these guys. I guarantee it like he 's been around the block for a long time. I have a feeling that if Daniel wanted to, he could find a way out of this thing that he could politic it, he could start to play dirty, and he could win this game because he knows how to do it. But watch what Daniel does instead daniel. And, uh, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward the Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So where does he turn? Does he try to control the situation? No. Where does he turn? To God. He prays. Now listen. <clears throat> There's different motivations as to why Daniel could pray right now. Is this Daniel saying, is this, is Daniel going to prayer because he's trying to show them, you can't tell me that I'm not supposed to pray. So he goes, he's trying to fly up in their face. Is that why he's praying at this point? This isn't a rebellious act, is it? This isn't him making a statement. Is Daniel praying primarily because he's in trouble and he needs help? That's not even primarily why he's praying. You know why he's primarily praying? Because he always prays. And nothing's changing. And he's just going to keep doing what he does. And he's going to be unaffected. Now listen, the story explains itself when you look at how he prayed. First of all, he goes upstairs and he looks toward Jerusalem. Why does he look toward Jerusalem? Well, there's two reasons. One reason is because the scriptures tell us that when they go into exile, When they go into exile, they're supposed to look back and pray. The scriptures, that was actually already written in scripture. He knows the scriptures. He knows he's supposed to pray back yearning for Jerusalem. But why would God have him do that? Why does he have him pray toward Jerusalem? What's the big deal? Well, here, let me explain this. If you were to ask someone anywhere in the world right now, where's the most powerful place on earth right now? What's the general answer that probably a lot of people would say? Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C., probably considered the most powerful place on earth. Babylon was Washington, D.C., and beyond. They were, without a doubt, the most powerful place on earth. And here he is in Babylon, the, the strength, you know, he is right in the center of it. He's in charge. He's got all this power. And yet he's supposed to turn and face Jerusalem. Why? Jerusalem is nothing except for the fact that there's this little mountain in Jerusalem called Mount Zion. And on that mountain, there's this building that used to sit there and hopefully will sit there again, they say, as this temple. And in that temple, there's this place in the middle of it called the Holy of Holies. And in that place, there's this thing that we call the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that Ark of the Covenant is this little blue flame called the Shekinah Glory. And what that is, is the presence of the living God sitting inside of a temple. It's where heaven comes down and it meets earth. It's where the true power exists. And see, here over here in the, in the world of men where people lie and cheat and slander and gossip in order to get a system to manipulate and control to gain power in Babylon, he gets on his knees in the middle of Babylon. Babylon, and he looks over to Jerusalem where he knows true power comes from, from the temple, from the presence of God. And he prays toward Jerusalem. And you know what he does when he prays? He thanks God. It says he prayed thanking God, as he always did three times a day. Now, And I love that he does it three times a day. I mean, this is a sheer discipline. You think like... Daniel just loved in the middle of his work to have to get up three times throughout the day and break up whatever it was he was doing and walk home and pray. No, I mean, he's like the, he's way busier. I guarantee you, this guy has more responsibility and is way busier than any person in this room. You know, like this guy, it was a struggle and yet he disciplined himself three times a day to take a break from whatever he was doing to go home and get on his knees. Why? Because he would grow in self-importance if he didn't and because God deserved praise and he had to continually remind himself that he wasn't in charge, that his skills weren't enough. No matter how gifted he was, no matter how good of a position he got, it was really about God. So he put these disciplines in his life so that he could come back three times a day. Why? Because it took that many times to keep himself centered in Jesus. If it takes a man of that integrity, that much, to keep himself centered, how much should it take us to stay connected to God, to remember that we're not in charge of our lives? that we're not the source of power. Where's the Jerusalem we look to? Where's the God who we lean into? Where are the three times a day that we pray and lean into God and say, this life isn't about me, it's about you, you know? And so he's praying and he goes and he prays like he always does and he says he thanks God because that's the way to start a prayer is to thank God because he's always worthy of praise. He's always, Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances, no matter what's going on. So what does he thank God for this day? Well, my guess is he's probably like, Thank you that Darius isn't actually in charge. Thank you that these guys aren't actually the source of power. Thank you that Babylon's political system isn't the basis of real power that you are. Thank you for that. Thank you that, you know, you got me, no matter what, no matter what's going on. You have me covered. Thank you, you know? And then it says that he asked for help. And of course, as a group, they go, and they see him, the big bullies, and they find it, and now they're going to go, and they're going to go tell the king. And so this is what they do. It says... Uh, and you got to hear this, this tone of voice is absolutely like, you got to hear tone of voice in this thing. So they went to the king and spoke to him about the royal decree. And you know, they got to play dumb here. Did you, publish, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to a god except to you, O king, would be thrown into a lion's den? And the king answers, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Yeah, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, did you hear that? There it is. In case you didn't know that they were racist before, now you do. You know? Oh, yeah, he's one of those exiles from Judah. They separate themselves from him, and they nail him for being, you know, that one of those guys. He pays no attention to you. And now that you can just see them trying to discredit him, they paint the picture. He's an outsider, and he pays no attention to you, O oh king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. Was the king distressed because he bought what they were saying and he thought Daniel's a bad guy? Of course not. The king's distressed because he realizes the treasure that he has in Daniel and in this moment, he knows what happened. He knows that he just got backed into a corner and that he got it handed to him and he's tore up about it. Okay, so he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group, of course, to the king and said to him, now they get a little bit more pushy, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree and edict that the king issues can be changed. Like, you know, you're the one who put it in writing. This is all on you. Sorry, but you did it, you know. Um, So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without entertainment, being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den, and when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? All right, now that's when you go to commercial break right there. You know, it's like the big cliffhanger. But what happens, you have you ever been in one of those spots where you, you're so tore up about something, you can't sleep, you can't eat, like eating would make you sick, you can't sleep because you're free. Think about that moment. Maybe you were losing a lot of money. You found out you had cancer. Maybe you, whatever it was, you know, you you and your spouse were having major issues. Just tears you up. That's, I mean, he's in this massive turmoil, the king, because he realizes just how rich of a treasure Daniel is. And the thing is, is this is the most powerful man in the world, perhaps. And he's that tore up and he can't do a thing to save his potentially best Friend, how much should we depend on the power of mankind when the most powerful man in the world can't do anything to save his closest advisor? You know? This it reminds me kind of a pilot where he's caught between that rock and the hard place and he doesn't know what to do. And it's like, you know what? Just give up on counting on men, because it's gonna fail. It's gonna fail when we count on the power of men. And so when we look for security from people or from trust funds or from whatever it is we look to, it's always going to fail. It always fails. And with all the best intentions and with the best people that we lean into, they'll still fail us because the whole system's flawed and people are flawed and you can't count on King Darius. You can't count on anyone to really be the backbone. And fortunately, Daniel never did. And what Darius knows about him is that is that truth. He knows that he has served God. And this is why he says, uh, he's, he says, uh, you know, the, ger, the God who you've served continually, can he rescue you? And so I love this. He's, when he runs to the to the den, he says, uh, Daniel, servant of the living God, the living God. Hear that? Why does he say he's the living God? Well, because he's really hoping that he's alive right now, you know, and that he's working because he knows all the gods that they talk about that aren't alive the same way that you and I know Okay, we serve the American dream, we go after success, we look for productivity at work, we look for the pat on the back from other people, we look for all the stuff. But you and I both know there isn't actually a living being there that's helping us. There's nothing alive. It's all gods that we serve, money, success. It's all that stuff that we serve, but there's nothing alive underneath of it. And you know what? The whole world knows that, and yet they haven't found anything alive. So they can't. what else do they have to serve? You know. And so here he says, Daniel... Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Has he been able to rescue you from the lions? I love that line. I love it. That's, my, that's like probably my favorite line in this whole. Has he been able to rescue you? You see, he's a seeker now. He's searching. Did Daniel ever proselytize him? Did he, did he, you know, Was he the evangelist that Paul was? None of that. And yet this guy is asking right now, Is your God able to do this? Is he a living God? Man, you must not know my God yet if you're asking if he's able to shut the mouths of the lions. He created those lions. He can make those lions Daniel's pillow pet tonight you know, like, we have, uh, we've got, uh, like, comic strip Bibles for my kids, and you see this picture of, like, Daniel's, like, lounging with the lions, and I don't know about all that, like, I I just have a hard time with that one, I don't know, I have a feeling that, like, it was all good, God had him protected, but Daniel's still pinned up against the wall, eyes wide open, you know what I mean, and at least that's where I'm at, I can't, you know, anyway, so, um, He's like, has he been able? And there's the cliffhanger. You wait for it, and it goes to commercial, and then it comes back, and they reset the scene. And you see him yelling into the tomb, and the music's going dun, dun dun dun, and you're waiting, and then all of a sudden Daniel cries out. And what does he say? You gotta love this guy. You gotta love what God does through Daniel. Listen to his first words: "O oh, King, live forever." What? Like seriously, his first words coming up out of the tomb. He reassures this guy of his allegiance to him after all of that. O king, live forever. You know why? Because the power of God not only shut the mouths of those lions, the power of God worked inside of his heart to make him a man who was kind and submissive and full of honor for the king the way it should have been. It's a beautiful thing. He says, my God has sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions and they've not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. That's a beautiful thing. Beautiful, beautiful thing. There's poetic justice here that's barbaric, but uh, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den and their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Wow. Okay. Now listen, verse 25 down. This is it. This is the grand finale. This is why we picked this story for today. Okay. This is the, this is the point at the end. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and of every language throughout the land. That's pretty good marketing right there. You know, that's pretty good publicity. Uh, He wrote to everyone. May you greatly, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel for he is the what living God and he endures forever His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in heaven and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Does this guy know a little bit more about God now? I mean, listen to that description. It's right there. He understands who God is now. He's the living God. Now listen to how he describes him. He calls him the God of Daniel. Notice he doesn't call him the God of Israel. This isn't like, he's not referring to like this nation's God. He doesn't call him the God of Jacob. This isn't like a historical God. It's not about that. See, he doesn't care about the history of where this God came from at this point. It's not about what nation they came from. See, he has one place where he's exposed to Yahweh. And it's through this guy who's right next to him, Daniel. And the real question here for all of us is that we live in a world. We live in a world that's desperate. That serves all sorts of gods that are not alive, that are dead. There's no hope in it. There's despair. There's aimlessness, purposelessness. There's nothing. And people just hang their heads and they do their work and they try to have some fun here and try to find pleasure here. But there's nothing actually worth serving. So they serve whatever's there. We're made to worship. We have to worship. So we chase something. We worship something. But we know it's dead. We know it's empty. We just don't, we've never seen anything alive. And you know why we haven't seen anything alive? Because no one's shown us anything alive. That's why our world struggles to find things that are alive, to find the living God. And what happens is there in Babylon, in the known center of the world, this man exposes people to the living God by doing one thing, not by teaching apologetics and showing them why there was creation against evolution. or you know, It, it wasn't all of that. You know, it wasn't about the, not that it's not important for us to think about why God makes sense or anything, but but that's not what did the trick here. You know, what this man needed to know was that the power of God was not a theory. It wasn't a myth. It wasn't some national thing or some historic thing that there was a God who was alive and well and can actually bring power that's bigger than Darius himself. And he needed to know that there was a God who was bigger than him that he couldn't control. And in this moment, when he threw a guy into a lion's den and that guy didn't get eaten, he knew that he just got trumped, that he didn't have the power anymore, that there was a living God who was bigger than him. And it wasn't the God of Israel to him. It wasn't the God of Jacob. It was the God of Daniel. So I want to ask you right here and right now, I want to ask you, in your life, in the places of despair and in the places of darkness where people are serving gods that aren't the living God, are you exposing them to a living God? Are you exposing them? And I don't mean are you telling them about Jesus. What I mean is are you betting your life on the truth of Scripture to the point that when God delivers, they see God alive. Because everyone else is betting on their skill set, they're betting on their money, they're betting on their good looks or on their humor or on their wit or their intelligence or they're betting on their friends or they're betting on their family or they're betting on whatever else. But we have the ability to actually bet on God, but we can't just tell people about it and expect them to believe that God is alive. We actually have to trust Him at the with our lives at stake. And we have to be total morons to people. (laughs) And what I mean by that is we have to be fools for Jesus. When we trust him, fully trust him, and we live our lives submitted to him, we give him the opportunity to come alive. There's a God of hope. There's a God of righteousness, of goodness, of transformation, of blessing, a God who provides all these things. But chances are, chances are, the way they're going to get exposed to it is when I begin to believe it with every fiber of my being, and it changes me around them. And then they will be like looking at us the way those guys looked at Daniel. The only way we're going to get him is if we challenge his allegiance to God. And they'll look at us the way Darius looked at Daniel, who says, you've served God continuously. you know," And it'll, all of that stuff where we day in and day out, we live faithfully dedicated to God, not hiding it, living like he did, praying consistently about what's going on at work, living in in high moral fiber of trusting God. And as we do that, it lays a consistent reputation, a testimony by which people see what's going on. And then there will come a moment. And when that moment comes, we have an opportunity. And the opportunity is to trust God when our necks are on the line. And if we put him to the test, it's not only that he'll show up for us, it's that he'll show up for them. And they desperately need it. It's a beautiful thing to ask God to partner, to, for, for God to ask us to partner with him on this level. And we get to see things that, are, that, that, that no eyes really get to see, only eyes of faith get to see. Beautiful, beautiful things. But in order to get there, we have to trust him with our lives. We have to bet our lives on it. And not just today here in church. But tomorrow at work, we've got to find a way to trust him. You know, And when we're at that Christmas family gathering, we've got to find a way to trust him in that environment. We've got to find a way to realize that stuff doesn't get done in Babylon or in D.C. It gets done at the temple. It gets done when we worship God and allow his power to be present in our lives personally. And when he shows up, people's lives will change. will change. I want to know God more. I want to see him work not just here. I want to see him work out there. So let's pray together that he will go with us.